Today on Ag News Daily. How has public opinion changed so rapidly on climate change or global warming? We have people marching in the streets now. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. It is a wintry day mm. across much of the middle, or it's been a wintry couple of days, I should say. You guys in central Iowa got snow yesterday. The snow has now moved its way into Illinois. It is progressing across parts of Michigan and Ohio and Indiana. Then there's some rain coming up the Ohio River Valley. It is just a mess for a lot of our listeners out there in farm country today, Delaney. Yeah, actually here in central Iowa, it's I wouldn't say it's warm, but it's definitely warmer temperatures than we've had here in quite some time and has turned a lot of the snow that we got yesterday and this past weekend into slushy, gross messes, basically. Yep, that is terrible. And, you know, we've got still the the hard days of winter left ahead of us. So I'm sure we'll get another freeze and then another thaw. We probably haven't even hit mud season yet. Yes, I know. Unfortunately, it seems like we're going to maybe just have a a late winter this year. Yes, yes, long and dark and cold and just awful. My least favorite. Yep, makes me wish I lived in San Diego. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Well, Delaney, I tell you what, we don't live in San Diego. We instead live in the heart of the American farm country, or you do anyway, and I'm in the major city in the heart of uh, farm country. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what is happening in the world of agriculture. What are some of the uh, news headlines you're keeping an eye on today? Yeah, for whatever reason, it's a little bit slower in the news cycle this week for agriculture, but we did have a big piece of news, a couple big pieces actually released today. I want to kick it off on the trade scene. Senator Chuck Grassley, who is, of course, acting as the Senate pro tempore signed the USMCA Implementation Act on Wednesday. So what this means now is basically we will see the USMCA agreement hit President Trump's desk for a full signature, but it also apparently evoked a new sense of optimism among lawmakers. And Grassley went on to say that, you know, a lot of the senators and representatives are feeling confident now uh, about at least on the trade side of things that we are starting to move forward in the right direction. And once President Trump signs it, I believe we don't have to wait for Canada to ratify it before we go into basically a waiting period before it gets implemented. So it really should does look like it should get implemented here come summertime. Perfect. Yeah, because I think they've got either 60 or 90 days, right, to yes. put implementation in place and kind of get all the wheels rolling. That is correct. Well, on the trade side, as long as we're talking about that, DTN, uh, uh, Lin, uh, excuse me, Lin Tan, who is the Chinese correspondent for DTN, had an interesting piece where she went out and she spoke with a lot of people who deal with agricultural commodity purchases in China. And basically she wanted to get to the bottom of what are they talking about in China when it comes to making the purchases that they have uh, committed to make, this you know, $36.5 billion worth of ag purchases. And I've got to say, the reporting doesn't leave me terribly optimistic. Uh, she spoke with a professor who is a, teaches at the China Agricultural University, a professor by the name of Jun Wang. And uh, Dr. Wang said that typically Chinese policymakers come out with a goal, at, you know, in this case, $36.5 billion worth of purchases in 2020. And then immediately after they state this goal, they 
kind of lay out the roadmap. Okay, we expect to see X number of billion go here, X you know, to hogs, X to soybeans, X to wheat, X to corn. And the agricultural import community in China is kind of in an upheaval because the government has not done that. They have not laid out any sort of a roadmap as to how these purchases should be fulfilled to meet their commitment. So remember, it is a command-style economy. Basically, whatever the government says goes. Um, there's nobody saying anything, so nothing is going. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this have an impact here in the U.S. We've seen this, uh, you know, almost a two-week now downtrend in the soybean markets as we continue to go more and more days without huge purchases by China. We see those outside investors kind of taking their ball and going home, and we're seeing this reflected in pricing. I mean, it's definitely bringing values down for soybeans. Uh, some of the other interesting facts they they talked about is that. Um, Basically, China has already met all of their soybean purchases, not just for the first quarter, which we reported on oh, about a week or so ago, when they bought several, I believe it was eight cargoes out of Brazil, kind of fulfilled their first quarter needs. According to these officials in China, now they have actually bought all of the beans they're going to need between Brazilian and U.S. purchases from now until June of 2020. So we are not going to expect a whole lot of short-term shipments and sales heading into China, considering we've already got so many sales on the books, or rather, so many purchases on the books, looking out for the first quarter of this year. Um, they, they also mentioned that there are still tariffs in place. Uh, the notable tariffs include DDGs, which we were hoping to ship more over to China, give a boost to those DDG prices, which is tough for American cattle feeders, but good news for the American ethanol industry, which has been losing money for the past three years. And there are also significant tariffs on sorghum that stretch back to, gosh, I want to say it was 2016, when we were seeing corn acres decline, sorghum acres explode, and China was buying lots of sorghum. Eventually they said, hey, you know what, we're kind of stifling domestic production, Let's put a big old tariff on sorghum so we quit bringing as much in and encourage local growers to raise sorghum. Well, it seems to have worked, and just like in the U.S., as soon as a government program is helping somebody, there are people very, very vocal about making sure that program stays in place. Basically, the overall tone of this article was that we're in uncharted territory, Mm -hmm. we don't know how China's going to react to the pressure, and we don't know exactly what they really need. All of their numbers are so opaque that we don't know what is true and what isn't. And this goes not just for those of us in America, apparently, but for those grain importers over in China. They're also not aware of what needs to be purchased to fulfill these commitments. So it, it might be a bit of a slog before we see China step into any of our ag markets in a really big way. Yeah, that was a. I read that article today as well. It was pretty interesting. We'll make sure and share it in our newsletter this week, which gets sent out every Friday. And if you're not subscribed, you can do that on our website, globalagnetwork.com. Absolutely. Check it out, folks. Get on that list. Get your newsletter. You've got great content from us. It's got market commentary from me here at the Zanier Group in Chicago. And it's got links to the other podcasts in the Global Ag Network so you can get tuned in on what other listeners are listening to when it comes to agriculture. Absolutely, Mike. But the other big piece of news, the big headline I've been watching today, 
doesn't come as any surprise, but it's nice that we have this kind of dealt with finally, and that's the new WOTUS rule, or really a repeal of the WOTUS rule. We saw the Trump administration release a replacement for the former Waters of the U.S. rule, and it basically just significantly reduces federal jurisdiction over streams and wetlands, but the article I've been reading said it's pretty much certain that we will see some legal battles over now the scope of the Clean Water Act. We could see folks on the other side of the aisle question and, I guess, potentially ensue legal action for this new WOTUS rule, but it basically eliminates federal protection that was provided during Obama's 2015 administration rule for ephemeral streams, which are basically those ones that flow in response to rainfall or snow melts, and uh, goes on to do a couple other things restricting basically federal jurisdiction. I think the big takeaway here for agriculture is that those waters, such as puddles, which used to be ruled by the federal government, will no longer be so under the repealed WOTUS. Yeah, I have seen a lot of hand-wringing about this. And uh, we've been talking about the environmentalist push to keep the prior WOTUS of the U.S. in place. It did have a lot of safeguards, definitely you know, put a lot of influence on, hey, you're going to be out on a horse for you know, who knows how long, 25 to 45 days. You know, Don't go out with somebody you, you want to smell your best for. And a lot of folks, I think, took that by heart. And they are... Uh, they're definitely they look a little kooky in some places here across the country. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting to keep an eye on, Delaney. Yes, it certainly has been. Well, I've got just one other. Well, I've got a piece of news that is definitely worth talking about. And this is something when we mentioned it's a slow news day in the world of agriculture, it's not a slow news day outside of agriculture. Of course, we do have the impeachment hearings continuing to do whatever it is they do on the Senate floor today. We've got the Democrats and the Republicans going back and forth, voting on a lot of stuff, party line vote, not a huge impact on the ag market. However, the commodity markets as a whole have been watching some things that come out of China, namely this new novel coronavirus. And they call it a novel coronavirus because this is the first time we have seen this particular type of virus bothering U.S. producers, let alone bothering, and excuse me, U.S., gosh, um, uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese folks. And uh, this is uh, is definitely definitely quite a challenge, Delaney. It certainly is, Mike. Yeah, and uh, so they so far. I was just listening to the news. They've got 18 confirmed deaths due to this uh, coronavirus. Which, for those of you who are like me and you're not familiar with exactly what it is, basically this thing causes flu-like symptoms that lead to pneumonia-like symptoms. So basically you get, a, you get fluid in your lungs, you, you cough and sneeze and all this sort of stuff. It just sounds generally unpleasant. Um, and it is airborne. So they believe it was caught by you know, perhaps somebody eating snake, handling wildlife inappropriately, and then uh, now it is airborne, so if you're around somebody with it and they cough, you, know, you could catch it. That's the fear, and that's why the Chinese have been shutting down two cities. Because China has been taking such an aggressive response to this coronavirus, the World Health Organization got together in kind of their emergency disease bunker, and they decided to go, do we or do we not call this a global health emergency? 
Well, they issued their ruling earlier today, and they said they are not calling this a global health emergency, but they are going to continue to watch it closely. A huge piece of news that a lot of the outside markets are watching definitely weighed on oil prices earlier in the day, and it does have some folks concerned for the reasons we mentioned yesterday. Transportation and logistics could certainly be uh, goofed up in China as they contain cities. Now they have basically quarantined two different Chinese cities over fear of spread of this disease. And, you know, that could add some wait times. It could add some challenges in transport of commodities around the country, which is definitely going to impact prices at the local level for, uh, for folks out there, particularly in the inland countryside. I think we should just make you our coronavirus uh, expert, or that's your new beat. I'm on it. I'm, I'm, infectious diseases have always fascinated me. <laughs> if I were smarter, Delaney, I'd have been a doctor. Well, you went to school about the same time as a doctor. I did. Nice layup there, Delaney. You, I threw yes. you a softball and mm-hmm. you nailed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to school for seven years and no, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, let's see. Do you have any other news for us, Delaney? I don't, Mike. Okay, I just have one other piece. I'm sorry I said that last one was my last piece. It was not. I lied. This is my last piece of news. Just to kind of put the dairy crisis in perspective, we've talked a lot about the loss of dairy farms in Wisconsin. Uh, Not the only state affected, of course. Michigan, New York, and Minnesota have all, as well as Iowa, basically any state with smaller dairies has been impacted by this. But the U.S., excuse me, Minnesota Department of Agriculture released its updated dairy statistics, and they say that in the past two years, 800 dairies in Minnesota have shuttered for good. Um, This last year, 2019, saw 317 dairies close, and uh, the number before that was, was just a little over 400. So that brings us to 800 dairies in two years have closed in Minnesota, and that has um, ripple effects. It definitely you know, impacts feed demand. It impacts you know, a lot of folks who work on those dairy operations. It is something that we are going to feel across the Midwest for some time to come. Yes, it certainly it certainly will, especially as we see uh, Wisconsin, unfortunately, chalking them up as well. Yes. Yep. Yes, indeed. Hello, and welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. There are many pulleys found on the farm, but often little thought is given to them. There are three areas of concern when discussing a pulley. These are belt type and depth into the contact area, alignment and pulley ratio. Proper alignment of the pulleys is essential to employ the complete contact area. If the alignment is skewed, the belt will ride to one side, wear excessively, limit the transfer of torque, and may not stay on. Often, alignment is achieved via a spacer or washer that can very easily be lost when worked on, especially when visibility is limited. To check pulley alignment, first eyeball it. That is not always conclusive, though, since the error may be minute. Then use a straight edge, wood or metal dowel or rod. Lay it on the top of the belt between the drive and driven pulley. The alignment should be perfectly straight. 
Another sign is if the belt seems to have excessive movement when in use and proper tension when off. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Well, let's see. Should we see if we've got any bright spots in the markets today, Delaney? Let's do it. And we do, listeners. We've got a bright spot here in the corn market. Beans were down, but not catastrophically so, and wheat ended higher on the day. As we take a look at corn, the March corn contract was up a nickel today to finish at 393 and three quarters, taking out its longtime ceiling of 392. So we'll see what happens tomorrow, but this could be a good sign of corn turning more bullish. The May contract was up four and a quarter cents to finish at 398 and a half. In soybeans, the March was down four and a quarter at 909 and a half. May also down four and a quarter closed the day at 9.23 and a quarter in Chicago wheat the March contract up two and three quarter cents at 5.80 and a half May up one and three quarters to finish at 5.79 even looking over at the world of livestock weakness again today in the cattle complex February live cattle dropped a dollar fifty to close at 124.67.50 April down two dollars sixty cents closed at 124.17 half. Feeder cattle not spared that weakness. The March contract dropped two dollars fifty-two and a half cents, finishing at one forty fifty-two fifty. The April down two fifty-five, closing at one forty-three forty-seven fifty. In livestock, the only one to buck the trend was lean hogs. The February lean hog contract was up ninety-five cents at sixty-eight fifty. The April up eighty-two and a half, finishing the day at seventy-five thirty-five. Let's see what happened in dairy. Are our dairy-producing friends getting any benefit? Well, a little bit. We've got mixed trade today. The January contract front month was down three cents at seventeen oh two. However, the February up nineteen, closed the day at seventeen ninety nine, getting very close to breaching that eighteen dollar barrier once again. Without further ado, Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's interview? Well, as promised yesterday, I've been at the Iowa Pork Congress this week and had a chance to chat with North Carolina CEO. Uh, Andy Carellis. Well, I am catching up with the CEO of North Carolina Pork, Andy Carellis, who just gave a very fascinating seminar here at the Iowa Pork Congress called When Reptiles Invade. Andy, first of all, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, tell me a little bit about North Carolina's current pork breakout uh, makeup that kind of a thing just for some of the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the pork industry as much oh sure uh, well uh, many may know North Carolina is number two producer of pigs and hogs in the country I say pigs and hogs a lot of times people forget that most of them are the, the little ones and uh, we do send some out here to the Midwest to uh, finish out um, we have about 2100 commercial uh, swine operations, most of them concentrated in the eastern part of the state. And I also wanted to ask too, you mentioned that you spent 20 years as a journalist and then now you are mm -hmm. in this role as CEO of North Carolina Pork, which is a very interesting transition. Tell us a little bit about that decision. Yeah, yeah sure. So I was involved very much in journalism in North Carolina, uh, investigative reporter most of my career, and then uh, ran state government and politics desks, and I was very much in the public policy uh, space looked at what was happening in journalism, a uh, complete meltdown in the newspaper world from an economic side, and transitioned out as uh, essentially a consultant and had clients in agriculture, clients in uh, pork production, uh, also processing, and then uh, naturally evolved from that into the current role that I have. 
And you've picked an interesting time to come in as CEO for North Carolina Pork, especially in today during your seminar, talking about all the transitions that we're seeing within the pork industry. Can you just give us a general overview? I know you talked about a lot of different points, and I want to get to some of those specifically, but can you just give our listeners a general overview of some of the main points that you hit during today's seminar? Yeah, sure. What I wanted to convey was really elevate awareness around the, the idea that there is very deep funding that has moved into this space against us, that um, it's very strategic, it's very coordinated, and tactically they have many approaches uh, that are available to them, one of them being in North Carolina, lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And so the last three years we've been dealing with lawsuits, and so of course I talked about that as well. Yeah, I want to get to the lawsuit piece, but I, I wanted to ask, too, you mentioned Dr. Patrick Brown, who's a professor at Stanford, who really has kind of created the impossible meat or started that movement, so to speak. And it sounds like from what you shared in your presentation, presentation today, they don't want to coexist with animal agriculture. Oh, no, no. And, and everybody should be very aware of that. The entire mission of the folks who are behind impossible is to end modern agriculture, animal agriculture. It's uh, very much of a, uh, we want to put them out of business, we want to replace them. Um, it's not a market-driven approach. It came out of the advocacy space as really a, well, let's try to change people's behavior if we can't change their mind. And so you, uh, folks need to view the current uh, iteration of these plant-based products in that vein, very much subsidized to try to end animal agriculture. And so animal agriculture, I mean, I'm not going to speak for everybody as a blanket statement, but it does seem like a lot of times we're, tr we're trying to coexist with, you know, these alternative meat products, or we're not necessarily in the mindset of, like, we need to get rid of them completely, but they are. So how do we combat or coexist with a group that's basically trying to get us out of business? Yeah, well, and of course we've been dealing that with that for a long time. I would just say these are another, it's another angle in that same front, if you will. Um, I certainly think there are some options that need to be looked at around labeling, around truth in advertising, uh, claims and things like that. But at the end of the day, you know, the marketplace is the marketplace and uh, I think that our product stands up uh, nutritionally and otherwise. The, the, I have faith in the consumer when it comes down to it. That's, I'm glad to hear that. That's uh, very enlightening to hear. But uh, the other thing that you mentioned besides kind of looking at the nuisance lawsuits was this movement that we're in right now with some of these groups at the upper level pouring in a lot of funding to create movements within the consumer base. Can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, they describe themselves as movement building. They study movements. Uh, one, for example, is how did public opinion change so rapidly on uh, an issue like gay marriage? Mm -hmm. uh, how has public opinion changed so rapidly on climate change or global warming where you have people marching in the streets now uh, about that particular issue? And so they want to replicate that into the uh, don't eat meat uh, space uh, and they are willing to invest large sums of money, millions of dollars I showed uh, in my presentation today using their own documents uh, how deep the funding is. 
And it's uh, it's scary. I mean, you mentioned at the end of your seminar today, it's not all doom and gloom for agriculture, but I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is, I mean, this is real. This is something that we're, we're facing right now, and it's kind of scary as an animal producer. Uh, yes, it is, but hopefully it's that awareness leads us to thought. And, and, and how do we want to uh, approach this? And it's, you know, you don't, when you don't know your enemy, uh, you don't know your enemy. And so uh, certainly I, I provide information that is very enlightening, or as you may say, to some people do say scary. <laughs> I certainly don't intend to scare anybody, but I do intend to raise awareness uh, so people understand that there's a new class of donors uh, really, in my view, based on misinformation, distortion, disinformation, that's what makes it so challenging. If we were dealing factually or uh, otherwise in science and that sort of thing, um, I think we have a great story to tell, a great you know place to stand. Uh, when you're dealing with misinformation, that's what makes it really challenging. Yeah, and then it's it's like, you know, we see farmers like Joey Carter that you mentioned today as one of the nuisance lawsuits uh, victims, and, and he does everything by the book. He follows regulations, and still, that video that you shared today was just so emotional. You, you can feel what he was feeling saying goodbye to his last load of hogs. How, how are we, as agriculture, supposed to, you know, move forward and continue doing things right when we just get shut down doing it? Yeah, well, so in the in the in the lawsuits themselves, of course, we have to put our faith in the appeals court, and we are heading to the appeals court uh, soon, and we'll hear arguments there, and we hope that the appeals court will look at this and say, yeah, this was an unfair situation, and they'll right that wrong. Um, there are times where we're dealt unfairness in the world. What we do is uh, respond to it, get better. Uh, stay proactive and uh, don't don't change in negative ways. That's really one of my messages. Is it's easy to be angry, but we're the good guys, and so we always have to behave like the good guys, even in the face of you know. For Joey Carter, a farmer in North Carolina who had a negative verdict, uh, a, a real injustice. But uh, you know. That's really where we have to put our faith is in is in the the process that's underway to deal with that. And so January thirty first is when it heads to the Fourth Circuit Court for appeal. It'll be uh, argued okay. there, and then some months later will be an actual uh, opinion will be uh, written on that. And, and do you know are other states watching this closely to see how it affects? maybe potential lawsuits coming in other states similar to this? Oh yes, no question that animal agriculture across the country has been watching very closely what has happened in North Carolina. Uh, the question is, you know, is this one bad judge who made a very bad decision? Uh, the North Carolina legislature had to react to that uh, and passed laws. Those are now being challenged. Uh, is that the situation? Is this one bad judge? Or is there really a fundamental uh, larger issue of a permitted, regulated, well-run business, a farm in this case, uh, being able to go to court like this? Uh, all of business, not just farming, should be very concerned uh, by this. Well, we certainly hope that they rule in agriculture's favor. But, Andy, thank you so much for 
joining us. Sure thing. Glad to be with you. Well, again, a big thank you there to Andy. Really fascinating stuff, folks. Just the unfortunate things that North Carolina hog producers are having to deal with, with nuisance lawsuits. And, you know, I, I think all of agriculture may have to deal with it at some point, but definitely all states are watching that upcoming appeal going on here in just a short week or so away to see how that will impact their state's agriculture, especially when it comes to the pork industry. Yes, indeed, Delaney and listeners, you can keep up to date on all the things impacting not just pork, but all sectors of the ag industry by following us here on Ag News Daily. To get caught up on past episodes, visit our website at agnewsdaily.com. Get connected with everything we have ever put out there, as well as the other podcasts produced by members of the Global Ag Network. And, of course, tweet at us poke us, whatever it is you do on Facebook anymore, and I don't even know what you do on Instagram, but we're on all three of those places. We want to interact with you. Search for Ag News Daily, and you'll find us. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.